It was the day on our first Ultra to Retreat, June 26th, 2015. The Supreme Court of the United States ruled by voting five to four. And it was interesting to even read it online and very encouraging to read not only the whole documents, but the, the reasons for the four judge, judges, Supreme uh, judges, that uh, the reasoning for their descending. Am I surprised? Not really. Because I've been following uh, some of these news and paying attention and uh, statistics come from that 37 states prior to June 26th has already legalized. Did you know that? 26 is a court decision, eight states by state legislature, and three by popular vote. Our neighbor nation, Canada, it's been legal, same-sex has been legal over 10 years, and Europe is obviously even earlier than that. But what I am a little surprised is that our friends coming out, and even Christian pastors coming out with very raving support and celebration. The people that I love, my relatives and close friends, on Facebook you could really put a rainbow flag. It's not majority opinion any longer that marriage is defined a union between one man and one wife, one, one woman. So we have come into this phase that we actually have became minority. I'm assuming most of us, and some of you have uh, relatives and family members, close friends who are gay, probably thought differently and changed many of the opinions shifted over past three, four years, not to mention our president. Why is it so important in light of all this? There are actually four things that we need to look at. Because this is, issue is a, a dividing, polarizing issue even among evangelical churches. There used to be black and white, the people who believe in the Bible as God's word, and the people who did not. Liberals, uh, theologically liberal people, and theologically conservative people. But evangelical in general is defined by people who believe scripture is God's word. And there is a division going on. This is the dividing factor for Bible-believing Christians, in other words. It, it's concerning. On top of that, it's polarizing. In other words, there is no longer the critical balance. Either you are full-blown, love wins, and rainbow flag-waving supporter, or you're a hater of homosexual movement, gay and lesbian, LGBT community movement. What does scripture really say? That's a question that we're going to ask. Not what's not my, what, not it's, it's not that my opinion or your opinion really matters. Secondly, it is also emotionally charged issue. And many of us now have close friends and family members who are openly gay. And this became such a personal matter. And those of us who believe in the most fundamental society value comes from marriage and family. This is deep, concerning, emotionally charging issue 
as well. Number three, it is also a confusing issue because there are so many different voices even among evangelical leaders. And there are actually two books written by so-called evangelical scholars and, and leaders and pastors. And without a doubt, it is very appealing, especially the political incorrectness. There's, they sound such more sensitive, sophisticated. It makes sense if we don't really pay attention to what they're doing to the scripture. Oh, typical person will buy into that. So critical mind, thinking rightly about marriage and sexuality would, would be important. Case in point, a New York Times, June 28th, that's a Sunday after Scott's decision, the reporter by the name of Michael Paulson writes this. The dramatic shift in public opinion and now in the nation's laws has left evangelical Protestants who make up about a quarter of the American population in an uncomfortable position, out of step with the broader society and often derided as discriminatory or hateful many are feeling under siege as they try to live out their understanding of biblical teachings and worry that a changing legal landscape on gay rights will inevitably lead to constraints on religious freedom. But the challenges are not only external. To a degree that is rarely acknowledged in the public square, many evangelical churches are grappling with internal questions, especially in and around large or urban areas. Pastors increasingly report that some openly gay and lesbian Christians are opting to worship in evangelical congregations. More and more are coming to our church, Mr. Allison said. Lan, Lan Allison, I know him from my past ministries. He pastors, he's one of the teaching pastors in, uh, in Chicago Bible Church, said that heterosexual worshipers are struggling over the church's posture because friends or family members are gay. The fourth and last one is why is it important to think rightly about this issue? Because it is a complex issue. Listen to this. Even just off the top of my head, I jot it down with all the books and articles and not only the scripture. These are the questions that I come up with. What does the Bible teach about marriage? Is homosexuality a civil rights issue or moral issue? What does the Bible teach about homosexuality? Is there such a thing as a gay Christian or gay pastor? Should Christian go to a same-sex wedding of a friend or family? Oh, this will come. Many, some of you probably encountered that already. What is the role of the church in responding, local church, in responding to the impact of the Scottish decision going forward? And finally, how should we genuinely love LGBT people? It's overwhelming. So let's pull back and ask. I'm sure I'm, I'm going to be. I'm going to have to teach on this several more times. But I want to keep our focus on three. The reason why I think. These three will help us to think rightly about marriage and sexuality or even indirectly answer other questions. If we're clear, clear about these three issues, three questions, I think it will 
be guided well by the scripture. Let me just say one last thing before we get into the teaching itself, what the scripture teaches. There are my pastor friends who has large churches actually came out and say, we want to have all inclusion ministry the same-sex couples. So it used to be, even five, six, seven years ago, many evangelicals, people who are really leading on the cutting edge will say something like, we disagree with your lifestyle, and Bible clearly teaches that, but we want to welcome you, love you. And in, as far as a leadership position, you need to change your lifestyle. Repent, in other words. And then some of those uh, pastors, well-meaning pastors, I think their motive in some part is good. Not all the motives are wrong. And largely we could learn much, of, much from them. And they said, uh, if my friend who is gay will be denied by at the communion table. We have a communion table today. I, want to, I don't want to go to church, the pastor says. That church. It sounds very appealing, very loving and grace, graceful. So before we get, get too confused, here is guidance from the scripture. I suggest... There are at least four key underlying causes for confusion, and for division, and polarization. And I want to give this four things right away so that as we go through the teaching of the scripture that you will be mindful about whether this is really true or not. Number one is a low view of scripture. Failure to have a priori, the submission to the supreme authority of scripture, scripture on faith and conduct. The evangelical is supposed to believe that God, by the Bible is the God's word. Um, theoretically, document-wise, many churches still believe that. All, probably even all those uh, churches who came out. But the problem with the posture is the scripture is not absolute supreme authority that supersedes all human, all expert opinions. We became a judge on top of the scripture. But the scripture needs to be accepted as right and wrong. So when, doesn't, and when it doesn't sound right, the scripture is taken and new meaning into it. You know, exegete the passage, get the meaning out of the passage. You actually me, put meaning into it. So when you don't have a pre-decision that God's word is a supreme authority, and God's word is not the problem. I am the problem when I read some passages. Rather than submitting to that scripture authority, we became a little wise on our, on our own mind. And that leads to man-centered worldview. Failures to see the world from the viewpoint of creator and the Lord as a center. And obviously, this presupposes some ideas. The secular humanism basically said influence of our modern culture is the man is the center. The five senses we have is basically what's given for us to discern what is right and what is wrong. And then with this cultural wave and current coming, it feels really wrong. 
Isn't it? To oppose. You sound, you sound like a bigot. You sound like a closed-minded person. The higher the education is, the person receives, the more the supporting they tend to be. That's the statistics tells us. It is the man-centered view. Number three, which is important, is the bad hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is basically principle, a science of Bible interpretation. Or I shouldn't say Bible interpretation. Any interpretation. The basic principle is this. If you are the author of this document, you have an original intent that is fixed. And as a reader, hermeneutical principle is that you will listen to the author's intent fixed meaning. But postmodernism brought personalization. So there's a living document. Even That's what we're doing even the Constitution of America as well. So instead of looking for author's intent, namely God, the Holy Spirit, but more humanly, Paul, Moses, what were their intents when they're writing this? What is the fixed meaning? Rather than doing that is through the lens of culture and our understanding of what's right and wrong, the interpretation has shifted quite a bit. It's a bad interpretation, in other words. And you don't have to be, you don't have to listen to me just because the, the same rule, right? Of just, it's a one Bible, but everybody can read differently. No, there's a one fixed meaning, and then you can, you and I can strive to look to that author's intent. We may disagree, but not in the intent that you already have, a reader's intent moving into the scripture that way. And lastly, I want to be honest about this. The lack of church being the church. Lack of saltiness. In other words, the failure of Christ followers and the church to live out as Christ sent people to show what true love looks like. Remember last Sunday we talked about the Suda transformation is behavior modification, changes on the visual side. It's very simple. Two things happen. You tend to control God. You, you think that God's, God owes you something. Or when God is not making things happen in your life, you get angry and frustrated. And then secondly, you become prideful in a way that you look, look on the nose everybody is to be judged by you. We need to repent of this pseudo transformation in our church, pseudo transformation churches across America. Why? Those of us who felt the incredible, amazing love of God and grace of God. Who is holy, who cannot stay with darkness. That he, there is no darkness and spot of any evil and unrighteousness in him. That he hates unrighteousness so much that he gave himself, his only begotten son, we know that. But in terms of what love became to, to the non-Christians, to the unbelieving world, love became very distorted. And the Christians continue banner waving on this in two extreme way. So here's the first thing that I, I will pull out from Scripture. Marriage is originated the Bible teaches, 
and designed by God for a lifelong covenantal union before a man and woman as husband and wife, which reflects Christ's eternal union to his church. The prime example, that more summarizing uh, passage, will be Matthew 19, verse 4 through 6. Jesus answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Up until then, Jesus is quoting Genesis 1. So, quoting any Genesis means origin. Origin means timeless principle. So, he's mentioning that. And then he quotes in verse 5, Genesis chapter 2. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not men separate. This clear definition of our Lord Jesus himself should be clear enough. The common objection that we hear is, in New Testament, Jesus is clear about marriage, but silent about homosexuality. If so, why can't two same-sex partners marry each other for a lifelong, covenantal, monogamous relationship? That's basically the gay Christian movement's argument. Jesus is giving us a definition of marriage and saying, recording, I mean, reciting from Genesis chapter 1 and 2, the marriage is a man shall leave the cling to his wife, and two shall become one. The Jesus' definition should be enough. Another way of putting it is a silence. Argument by silence is as if it's saying, whatever Jesus didn't say, it could be approved by our own culture. For example, people from Utah will say, I like polygamy. So what about our wantings and desires. Jesus isn't speaking against and condemning verbally in New Testament. And there are other examples that we could go on, but this is explosive, emotionally explosive again, because the potential of opening the door to that LBGT community will get offended in, in such a way that is it is, are you equating us to this kind of thing? How about sex? Sex is originated and designed by God as a sacred oneness between a husband and wife and in monogamous relationship. The husband and wife defined in the marriage, the biblical marriage. Maybe the primary example from two passages 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 9. One of many examples, I should say. Paul is writing to Corinthian singles, but if you cannot exercise self-control, they should, they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Simple implication is very straightforward. It's better to be married because sex is allowed. A pleasure is allowed as well as a procreation in that. It's, it's, it's rather, instead of trying to be spiritual with burning with passion and struggle with temptations, in the name of spirituality, it's better for you to marry if you, if you don't have the self-control. And I think it's sadly the reality of 
that what, what's really happening in, in, among the Catholic priests who cannot self-control, actually not because they have a homosexual tendencies, but because of their urges not it's under control. The little boys are abused in that way. Hebrews 13.4 is overarching thing. Let marriage be held in honor among all. Let the marriage be bad be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. So sex is good, beautiful, powerfully, and then we, we uh, went over that passage a few times. The God has gift, gift us. God has gifted us with pleasure. That extra bond between husband and wife happens. But within the boundary of marriage. The common objection is if some people have an innate involuntary desire for homosexuality, is in sex with the same sex partner only natural. This is probably one of the most prominent arguments for gay marriage. So, thinking rightly from the scripture, there are very key things we need to understand. Number one is that there is an original sin. Adam and Eve sinned, and then because of that first sin, sin marred the nature of humankind. And sin made each one of us pervasively depraved. Sinful. One of the results of that sin, curse of the sin, is the desires of the flesh. The flesh is not a, this kind of flesh, desire of the sin nature. In other words, not only LBGT community people, but you and me have a disordered, distorted desires that comes from the flesh. We have to admit that. We're groaning until we see Jesus face to face. The sin nature will be continually enemy within us. The flesh, Apostle Paul calls it. So just imagine this. As a, when I was a youth pastor and college pastor, oftentimes I counseled these young men and one young woman. Pastor Paul, you know, studies tell us that the sexual peak for Men is 17, 18, 19. Why is it wrong for me to sleep with my girlfriend? It seems so natural. Yeah? And I'll tell you this. Even as a pastor, when I look at beautiful girls... My fleshly desire, if I may, I could have sex with her. The distorted desire is not just that, it's in an anger. One of brothers said, that, you know, I've been to anger management. I've been to all through these things. But in my family, there seems to be a, some kind of a anger zine. True. Some of, some of other brothers will say, or sisters will say, I have a disposition, natural disposition to alcohol. I love alcohol. I could contain with much of a limitless amount, which is the symptom of alcoholism, isn't it? What's wrong with that? It just seems so natural. Human sexuality, in, 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 in the sense that when we are beginning to ask questions about what do I feel 
and I need to be truthful to my feelings. That's a postmodern influence on us. We should be faithful to the truth. When you wake up in the, in the morning, after the honeymoon era is over, you look at your wife. You don't have any whatsoever desire until she gets dressed up, maybe put some makeup on. <laughs> Did I marry this person? Or the, the wives will have the same thing. The husband's little things, like a pet peeves, you, you just cannot stand it anymore. <laughs> he doesn't put socks in the laundry basket. Maybe he snores. Should you be faithful to your feelings? Absolutely not. What's going to happen if you're a nursing mom? I am tired. I am sick and tired of this crying baby. <laughs> Being truthful to your feelings. Thank God your mom, your, your dad didn't do that. <laughs> the fleshly desires is in us. That is sin nature marred. I need to move on. And finally, on homosexuality, this is a very important distinction that we need to make. The Bible condemns not the orientation, not the same-sex attraction, or even desire, but same-sex practice. Homosexual practices are immoral and sinful and condemned in the sight of God. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10 in ESV. Or do you not know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Listen to this first. Number one, homosexuality is not a superb sin that supersedes anything else. It's one of the many sins that will lead people eternal damnation to not inherit the kingdom of God. That means you have, I, I have sins without Christ that we will be damned for eternity. On the other side of the coin, people who practice homosexuality clearly is condemned. The problem is this. Remember that I said a fleshly desire, distorted desires that is disordered desires, not God's uh, original intent, designed intent, flesh the desires. Desires should be the of the of the spirit and of what God desires. When we face with that, we could choose not to put our will to it. And then you're saying, some of you are saying already, oh, that's not fair. The God, you know, they're born with that desire and they have to live with it for the rest of their life? Yes. That's what it means to submit to the supreme authority of Scripture. Also, those people who are divorced or widows, whose loved ones passed away. They cannot simply say, just because of my knees, I'm going to relieve somewhere in any way. One nice sexual partner, or internet sex, what, if, what might not, what have you. Let's look at another passage. Romans 1, verse 26 to 27. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. 
This is one of those passions, okay? So fleshly desire, distorted, disordered desire. For their woman exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary, contrary to nature. And the man likewise gave up natural relations with man, woman, and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And this is one of the, the most disliked passage and problematic passage for the LBG community. So let's look at the common objection, the twofold common objections. One is Bible interpretation. No one today would ever adhere fully to the far-fetched Old Testament laws in Leviticus, which includes that any man who touches a woman during her menstrual period is to be stoned to death, that adulterers are to be executed, and that certain foods like shellfish and things like that and pigs must never be eaten. I might as well, I didn't put it there for our youth. Those who use violence and curses their parents should be stoned. Whoa! One time I saw sons. Did you see that right here? There are three laws in the Old Testament, in the entire, New, entire Bible. One is timeless law, which is Ten Commandments. It's called the moral law. Any culture, any, any time, murder, adultery, lying, theft, dishonoring parents, always consistently right. We ought to follow that. The second law is a civil law. We went through that. Book of the Covenant in Exodus study. It is a time-constrained civic law for the Israelites in the wilderness. The time period, which is not applicable to us, especially those of us who are under the grace because of Christ's blood brought the new covenant. Third, ceremonial law. Ceremonial laws were given because of the fact that God trying to, God wants to separate them from other people, people groups, as a chosen people. The ceremonial law is a dietary, dietary uh, regulations, the way that you cut your beard, the way you wear clothing, and even the very devout, Orthodox Jews will continually keep that. So obviously, out of three laws, only one of them is applicable, timeless, to us. And that God's desire, I mean, God's feelings against the sins, especially sexual sins, are revealed very harshly. But that continues on in the New Testament. We cannot just put away just because it does, it's not relevant anymore. Second objection is, moreover, the same-sex relationship are con condemned in, in and by the New Testament are the really exploitive bad ones. Pederasty, uh, which is a pedophile for the homosexual tendencies. Prostitution and rape, slavery, and the, the Bible reading of these well-meaning people trying to be, make the Bible make sense to our culture, what they did is basically, in the New Testament, there isn't a form of a modern-day loving gay relationships. So therefore, the Bible doesn't condemn this. If you look at exchange their natural relations 
For those that are contrary to nature, men likewise gave up natural relations with women and consumed with passion for one another. There is no prostitution going on. There is no sex trade and slavery going on. There is no pedophile going on. Man and woman having passion, the distorted fleshly desire with one another. And psychosexual disorders, even the people who arrived, cannot, cannot uh, get aroused anymore, have psychosexual disorders there. Either some object that they need to have a woman's shoes, and they need to have a woman's panties, they need to watch something when in secret. All kinds of things are going on, right? And those are the distorted view, distorted fleshly desires. Let me be very upfront with you. We have our problem. Pride is a serious problem, sin. Christ despises us for that. We cannot negate our sins and say, that's sin. Obviously, that's wrong. But it is also wrong to say, we support you, we celebrate your human rights. Actually, in reality, they're celebrating sinful, immoral lifestyle defined by God. We cannot do that. So in conclusion, there are two things that I'm going to provide. Number one, how should we love, genuinely love LBGT people? We must love them with conviction in God's word by not celebrating homosexual practice or approving same-sex marriage and by, rather by, pointing them to Christ's truth humbly and patiently. And Jesus says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. The timeless principle of Jesus and sexual immorality and morality is true 2,000 years ago, true now, and will be true 2,000 years later. So if we really believe someone's harming themselves, spiritually speaking, and you know, morally, other, other things, and, you know, you know, in terms of human standard, and health-wise, the interesting thing is uh, gay people seem to be much more sophisticated, artistic, creative. Do you remember the Fab Five show? I mean, I love that show because they, I could get some lessons from those guys how to wear you know, proper clothing and how to even shave. I cut myself all the time. So in many human standards, they are very fabulous people. But God's word has the last final authority. To those loved ones, we achingly need to say, I love you enough not to say that I want you to repent. It is equally wrong to continually say as if we are messianic principle. You, you, don't, you don't say to the people who are prideful people, Today, I need to tell you that your pride is sending you... We don't do that, right? <laughs> People who, who are lazy, who, who eat too much. We don't do that. But we have this, some weird sense of... That comes from the externalism, through the transformation, that we are actually... I'm good now, again. One of the young pastors. I chose... Not theologians, but the pastors who are practitioners like you and me, writes this. The current debate is plagued by this binary lens. 
those on the left try to lump everyone who disagrees with them into the right side. If you don't support, you hate. Meanwhile, those on the right see compromise and spinelessness in anyone who doesn't get red-faced and militant. If you don't hate, you support. But true followers of Christ will walk neither path. We have something to say that no one else is saying or can say. Distancing ourselves, distancing ourselves from both the left and the right. We don't celebrate homosexual practice. We don't we acknowledge God's clear revealed word that it's that it is sin. And we don't hate those who embrace homosexuality. We love them enough to not just collapse under the societal pressure, we speak the truth in love into this confusion, saying simultaneously, that's wrong, and I love you. We're not the left, we say this is wrong, and we're not the right, we say you're loved. We speak good news, with those sweetest, deepest, most glorious words of the cross, the same words that God spoke to us. You're wrong, and you're loved. Jonathan Parnell is right. We ought to have continuous conviction. And I ask you to pray for me that our church will be faithful to the teaching of God's word, whole counsel of God's word. By the way, my job and our church's job is not changing the government or changing the law or even picketing or political activation. The far greater impact happens when we truly believe God's word is powerful enough. Sufficiency of God's word and powerful God's word even long before we go away. After we go away, our generations will reap the harvest of that effort. Finally, number two, we must love them with compassion of Christ, not by mere words, but by inaction and thoughtfulness. In so doing, are we ready? And now that it's legalized, you know, people who will assume that church will be receiving, by no means we will be all-inclusion church, but we will be the church that going into the messiness of loving people who are broken. Without approving them, but accepting them. That includes love in action, spending time, eating meals with them, not necessarily approving their lifestyle and celebrating. So I put another practitioner by the name of Jim Burns. He writes, My friend Bill is a practicing gay man. Shortly after Bill confided in me about his lifestyle, I invited him to lunch. Even though I disagreed with his lifestyle choice, I wanted to communicate that we could still hang out together. When Bill asked me about my beliefs on homosexuality, I shared that I believe the Bible is God's word and has 17 references to sexual sin. I made sure to, to point out to Bill that just three of these references are about homosexuality. That doesn't mean God isn't concerned about homosexuality, but just that homosexuality isn't worse than any other, any other sexual sin. It's all sin. What was fascinating was that Bill asked me to find those references. Romans 1, 18 through, 18 through 32, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, and 1 Timothy 1, 9 through 11. So he could look them up. After he read them, he wanted to talk, talk more about it. 
Bill hasn't changed his lifestyle, but he knows that I value our friendship. He knows where I stand, but he is willing to have these conversations because he knows I care about them. There are two things that we need to live it out, to have saltiness, conviction and compassion. If we lose compassion and conviction only, we become brutal people. The people who are brutal will chase broken people away. But politically correct way, a lot of evangelical churches getting on the bandwagon, we become compassion, and there is no conviction. We have no distinctive message of hope for the people who are broken. They're in the puddle of their brokenness, and we left them alone. That is not love. Love to not rejoice over evil things. So one person asked me, as I'm sharing this, previewing, what does it look like? Oh, that's the problem, isn't it? We need real people who are under the control of the Holy Spirit who can live it out. It says, like Jim Burns and like Jonathan Pennell, the people who could have just a little bit of a glimpse of Jesus with skin on. Let's be that. We don't have to win the big debate. We don't have to save the LBGT community. But we could be salty Christ followers who shows Christ within our lives. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And even this morning, I just sense tensions between two polarized sections of our world. And my heart is tugging away to compromise one way or the other. Would you teach us to embrace conviction and compassion at the same time? Would you remind us that we are not orphans left alone to do our work on our own, but Holy Spirit, the helper that you have sent is residing each one of us in the, within this church. Guide us and prompt us Open our eyes to your scripture that we may feel growingly confident what it means to live like true followers of Christ with saltiness. In Jesus' name we pray.